Last week we covered Psalm 42 and 43, which were sort of combined with the same theme. Today we're going to be in Psalm 44. And it's a pretty simple psalm once you see it, how it's laid out. Psalm 44 describes uh, Israel in some sort of battle. They're losing the battle. The general is trying to think uh, through this whole issue. Why in the world are they losing the battle when they've been faithful to the Lord? He doesn't understand it. He's in sort of a state of depression, state of questioning. And uh, that's what this psalm's about. So if you think of it in, as a battle that's taking place, Israel losing the battle, the general trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Okay? And we're going to outline it this way. Verses 1 through 8 is going to be stanza number 1. Remember that the psalms were basically songs. So we can put those in stanzas or verses. So stanza 1 would be uh, verses 1 through 8. Stanza 2. And this deals with uh, hope in God. For a victory. You'll see that that's what they're hoping for. God's going to come to their aid and they're going to win the, win the battle. Uh, verses 9 through 16 is the second stanza where there's a complaint. Why in the world aren't we winning the battle? If God's with us, you know, we should be winning this thing, but we're not. What in the world is going on? And then verses 17 through 26, you're going to see that uh, the general says, we will be loyal to you no matter what, whether we win the battle or whether we lose the battle, okay, despite the circumstance. Now you'll notice there's a superscription over the psalm. The superscription isn't the heading that you have in bold, it's in those small letters, and it says, to the chief musician, which means this has been written to be put into song, uh, the lyrics are going to, to the lyrics going to be added uh, music. And then it says, a contemplation or a meditation, if you have a Bible that has the Hebrew, it says maskel, which simply means a contemplation or a meditation. So while they are singing this song, they are supposed to be meditating on the words and say, what lesson should we learn from this? We're not just singing a song, hey, we sang three songs this morning. They should be singing the song with understanding, trying to figure out what in the world uh, lesson that God has for them uh, as a nation. I want you to notice that it opens up in verse 1 with a declaration. Psalm 44, verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. There's the declaration. The psalm ends with a petition. Do it verse 26. So we, verse 1, we heard what you did in the old days. That's a declaration. Now the petition, verse 26. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. So we heard what you did in the past. Now we're asking you to do it for us in the future. And if you had those two verses, you would know what that psalm is about. Okay? So let's look at section number one. Hope in God for victory. The basis of their hope. Look at verse one. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. Now here we have these three verses, and they are making a declaration of what God has done in the past based on 
uh, stories that have been passed down orally. So we heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what you did. Uh, so this is not a written history. This is simply stories that have been passed down uh, about God's great exploits and victories in the past on behalf of Israel. Now I want you to notice the pronoun you and your in this first stanza. Notice how many times it's in there. Look in verse 1. The deeds you did. Look at verse 2. You drove out the nations. Look at this. With your hand. You planted them. You afflicted. Look toward the end of verse 3. But it was your right hand. It was your arm. It was the light of your countenance. You favored them. See that? So where would the emphasis be there? It would be on you and your. On what God has done. They realized in the past, God is the one that has brought them the victory. Notice the phrase in verse 3, your countenance. Look at this. The light of your countenance. You see that? Those of you who were here last week, you remember that phrase, that concept of countenance? Back in the other two Psalms, for example, 42.5, you see at the end of that, countenance, his countenance. This means God's favor. God showed favor on the nation. Verse 11, you see down at the end of verse 11, the help of my countenance and my God see the countenance there, and then you see countenance over in 43.5, the end of verse 43.5. God's countenance means God shines his favor upon us. And so they said, in the past, our fathers won the victories. They were brought out of Egypt. They were delivered from Babylonian captivity. All these things happened because you did it. You shined your face upon them. You showed them favor. And that's why all this happened. We know that because these stories have been passed down. Now in verse 4, we come to the key verse in this stanza. Here's what the general says. He was writing this. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob, which Jacob was simply another name for Israel. Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So here he says, you are my God. Notice the phrase my there, or the pronoun my. He's going from your and you to my. So now this is the person who's leading the army, evidently. And he says, now guess what? Just as you led Israel in the past and you delivered them, you commanded and there were victories, guess what? You're my God too. That means I'm expecting victories out of you too in this battle that we are experiencing right here. So he's moving from the past to the future, to the present and to the future. Okay. Now look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Now he's going to move from the past to the future. Watch this. And watch the verbs. Watch the verbs. Verse 5. Through you, we will push our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise against us. So notice, he goes from what God did to the past to what God he expects God to do in the future. Notice it's through us. God is going to do it through us. It's going to be through you that we push. See, We're going to do the pushing, but we're going to, we know it's going to be you that's 
involved in this. And then it says at the end of verse 5, and through your name we will trample those who are against us. So they're going to move in the name of God in this battle. Now look what he says in verse 6. Here's the reason they're going to fight in the name of God. For, because, now watch the verbs and watch what he says. We're going to fight in your name, we're going to expect the victories through you, because I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. Now, he's going to have the bow and arrow, and his men are going to have the bow and arrow, and they're going to fight with the sword, but what are they trusting? They're trusting in God. <coughs> David got himself in trouble one time when he decided to take a census to determine if he had enough men to win a battle. And in that case, the scripture says that Satan deceived David into taking the census. God doesn't care how many people you have. If he's with you, then what? You're going to win the battle. So this guy says, in the past you delivered Israel. Now I'm trusting you to deliver us in the future. Notice all the future verbs. Will, 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 will. And it's the general who's trusting. Notice he says, I'll do this. I will trust in, I will not trust in the book. I will not trust my soul to save me. So the leader is the one who's doing the trusting. So you see the word sword... In verse 6, do you see that? Nor shall my sword save me. Look at back, back in verse 3. In the past. For they did not gain possession of the land by their what? Own sword. They were not trusting their arms to win the battle. They were trusting God. So you see here, you go in the battle. This is how Israel operated. Yes, a nation came against them and they had to pick up swords. But they weren't trusting in the swords. They were trusting in God. And the general says, and that's how I am operating this battle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Scripture says, to the pulling down of strongholds. They're spiritual, so we have to trust in the Lord. Okay, now look at verse 7. But you have saved us from our enemies. And I think that's just talking about in the past, because this is in the future. He doesn't say you will. <laughs> But you have saved us, so I want to say that's in the past from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hated us. He realizes that God's done it in the past, and uh, he's hoping that God's going to do it in the future. And here's what he said. In God we boast all day long. So when they go into battle, they say, when they go to the front lines, they say, we come in the name of the Lord, the one true and living God, and they boast in God's name. Remember how David stood against Goliath? Came in the name of the Lord, didn't he? Up against the giant, there's no way this little kid's going to win. But he came in the name of the Lord. And they are boasting in God's name, just as Israel in the past. And he says this, And we praise, and in the verse 8, we praise your name forever. And then you see the word Selah, which means, at this point in the psalm, stop and think upon, maybe there's sort of a musical interlude and you're supposed to think, about what those words you just sang were all about. And so we need to be thinking about this. 
I don't care if it's what nation it is or what your situation is, don't trust in your own devices. You need to trust in the Lord. Now that's the high point of the sermon, of the psalm. High point is, we're trusting in the Lord, we're coming in the name of the Lord. Everything from this point on in this next stanza goes downhill. Okay, so let's look at stanza number two. You still with me? Okay, now look at verse number nine. Here we're going to see the complaint. Okay, the lament or the complaint. Verse nine. But, watch, you've cast us off. Well, I know what you did in the past. You know I'm trusting you now, but what's going on here? You've cast us off. You've put us to shame. You do not go out with our armies. So contrary to expectation, and despite his boasting on the Lord, the Lord's letting them down and they're losing the battle. And he's confused. He's despondent. He, the the, the, the uh, army is in a precarious position. Look what he says in verse 10. You make us turn back from the enemy. That means retreat. We've had to retreat. We've been in the thick of battle and we were getting overwhelmed. We had to, we had to turn our backs to the enemy army. We had to run for our lives. We had to escape. We had to retreat, verse 10. And those who hate us have taken spoils for themselves. When we retreated, we had to leave our supplies. We had to leave our arms. We had to leave our everything behind and we fled our camp and when we fled the camp the enemy came in and got up all of our supplies all the spoils of battle and here we are we've been we're on the run and they got everything that we have so he's very concerned what in the world's happening look at verse 11 you've given us up like sheep intended for food and you've scattered us among the nations well, what in the world does that mean? You've given us up like sheep intended for food. Well, in order to eat sheep as food, what do you have to do? You have to kill it. You've allowed us to get slaughtered by the enemies. You know, when you just kill a sheep, there's no resistance. They don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's been swift. It's been fast. Uh, we, and we've had to run. Look, we're, we're scattered among the nations. And there's a historical thing where it's not that the troops are scattered. It's, he says the whole nation... We don't, from a historical standpoint, we don't know exactly when this event took place. But if you try to put it into some sort of historical context, we can't find an event when Israel was scattered among the nations until the Babylonian captivity. And the Psalms were written before that. So we don't know whether this Psalm has been uh, what it's referring to. But evidently, something's happened in Israel's history that we don't have a record of except right here. Where in some sense, Israel has gone to war, war, they went in the name of the Lord, they boasted and bragged on the Lord, the Lord seems to have let them down, they've lost, they're scattered among the nations, they have been defeated. Look at verse 12. You sell your people next to nothing, he says to God, and are not enriched by selling them. Uh, You've lost all your people. It's uh, you, you haven't got, we haven't gotten anything. You haven't gotten anything for it. All this effort, all that we've done, uh, all the thousands of lives that have died. Uh, what have we got for it? What have, you, what have you gained from this, Lord? There's nothing. We don't see any profit from any of this. 
Like, remember the Korean War? Well, we went in, you know, at the end, what, what, what did we get? We got zero. And this is how he's complaining to the God. He's got God, he says, we've been in the battle, and look at us. We've just lost this, 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 and this, and there's nothing to... And it's been just so easy for them to defeat us. There's, you sold us short. This is why we call this a complaint. This is the complaint right here. Verse 13. You make a reproach of us to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those who are around us. That means we're the laughing stock. Uh, when they walk by and they look at the, the city of Jerusalem and they see everything torn up, the people, ah, oh, yeah, I remember them bragging about how God was going to come to them. Remember Job? He was a laughing stock. All these things came upon Job, and he became what he called a byword. People walk by Job and say, ah, I remember when Job used to live there, that rich guy, you know. He said he's trusted in these gods. <laughs> Did you see what's happened to him and his family? They made songs about him, you know. You ever hear of people, you've heard songs about people, ballads about people who did something stupid, you know. Hang down your head, Tom. Ooh. What am I doing? <laughs> um, they, they made songs about Israel in this general. And he's saying they're a laughing stock. We bragged on you, and they're laughing at this. This is ridiculous. And that's what he's talking about. We are a reproach to our neighbors, that would be the heathen nations, and a scorn and a derision to all those nations who are around us. Now notice, each verse, the general, or whoever's writing this psalm, is blaming God for the defeat. Do you see that? Look at verse 9. You cast us off. Into verse 9. You do not go out to war with your armies. We said God's with us. Where have you been? Blames God for that. Verse 10. You make us turn back. Hey, we retreated. You did that. You made us retreat. If you'd been with us, we wouldn't have had to retreat. So he's blaming God. Verse 11. You've given us up like sheep. Verse 12. You sell your people. Verse 13. You make a reproach. You see that? Look at verse 14. You make us a byword among the nations and a shaking of the head among the peoples. They'd say, yeah, oh, that's that nation that bragged about themselves and but we beat them without any trouble. You know, it was a six-day war. Yeah, we fought the war and they bragged that everything would be over and they would defeat us with God on their side. We had this whole thing over in just a few days. <laughs> Boy, Where's their God? Yeah, that's what they're saying. Look at verse 15. The king says this, or the leader, or the general. My dishonor, because he led and he bragged, my dishonor is continually before me. Look at that. Notice he makes it very personal. He's embarrassed. He's embarrassed. How often is he embarrassed? Always. Continually before me. Every minute of the day, I'm embarrassed because I boasted in you, God, and you let me down. And he says this, and the shame of my face has covered me. I can't walk out in the public and lift my head up. They just Because when I do, people are looking at me and I see them whispering about me. Because, and here's he tells why you can't lift these up. Because the voice of him who reproaches me and reviles me, because of the enemy and the avenger. You see that? That word avenger is a very important word because what it seems to indicate is this battle was a result of 
of uh, one of the other nations having having been defeated by Israel, and now they're coming back. They're, they're avenging maybe the death of their king, or they've lost the battle, and now this is a vengeance battle. They've come back. And uh, the general here has bragged about God, but that nation defeats him. So I can't even lift my head up because of all this. So remember in verse in Psalm 42 and 43, one of the refrains was, Where is your God? Remember that from last week? These nations are saying the same thing. Well, where's your God? You've been bragging. I have to keep my head down. I can't even answer. Okay. So that's the second stanza. Now look at the third stanza. Okay. And what we're going to have here is we're going to see that the king declares his loyalty to God no matter what, even if God lets him down. Despite the circumstances, he says, I will remain faithful to you. Now this is very important. Okay. Look at verse 17. All of this has come upon us. That we've not forgotten you. Nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Now what does that mean? All of this has come upon us. We've lost the war. All of our spoils gone to you. We're embarrassed. We have to let our head hang down. But despite that, he says, we've not forgotten you. We've not said, okay, we're going to abandon you, and we're going to go and start worshiping the idols of these false nations. We've never done that. And he says, we've not abandoned the covenant. We've not dealt, dealt falsely with the covenant. You may have forgotten us, but we haven't forgotten you. And this is a very important thing, to say to God, you know, God, through it all, we haven't forgotten you. It's sort of an accusation, isn't it? You forgot us, but we haven't forgotten you, God. Usually it goes the other way around, isn't it? Doesn't God usually say to us, Now you've forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten you. I've kept my covenant. Remember that covenant that I made with Israel? That I would be their God and they would be my people? If you obey my covenant, you'll get all these blessings and I'll be with you. If you break my covenant, there'll be cursings. And so, Israel says, We've kept your covenant. We never dealt falsely with your covenant. We didn't say we'd keep it and we broke it. We've kept it. Guess who's broken it? You've broken it. He's accusing God of not being keeping his word. What's going on here, God? If you've ever been in a situation in your life where you've gotten angry at God, and I've been there once, I didn't go tell everybody I was there once, but I was there once. Because I looked at everything around and I tried to be a fair and faithful person and things are falling apart and I'm saying, I get mad at God. I'm angry at God. What in the world's going on around here? So if you've been in that situation, you know what's happening in this guy's mind and how he feels. Look what he says in verse 18. This is a great one. Our heart hasn't turned back. Now why is that important? Because in verse 10, he said, you made us turn back from the enemy. Because you weren't with us, we had to retreat. But I want you to know something, God. In our hearts, we've never retreated. We've always stood with you, God. <laughs> These are accusations. We've never retreated really in our hearts. We've always been toward you. And then look at verse 18, middle of 18. Nor have our steps departed from you. But you, notice the word but. 
But you have what? Yeah, you've severely broken us into pieces, into the place of the jackal. You've covered us with the shadow of death. He's accusing God. He says, you're the reason for all these deaths and these wars. We've never forsaken you. We've stood with you. But you let us down and you covered us with the shadow of death, which means we've, been, we've lost people in battle. In death. So he's very upset. You can see that. Now look at verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our Lord. See, that had been another thing. If, verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our Lord, or we stretched out our hand to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And the answer, that's a question. And the answer is yes. If we had forsaken God and we had become idolaters, would God have known that? Sure he would He would have known that. Now here's the question. We've been faithful, haven't we? We've never turned our back on you, have we? Do you know that too? Shouldn't you know that too? See, this is a guy who's really frustrated. And I'd be frustrated too if I went out based on the agreement that God makes with Israel that I will be with you in battle and I will be your God and I went out in the name of God and he let me down and I had thousands of men killed in battle and I had to run for my life and we, the rest of us had to run for our lives and we got scattered among the nations and now we have to walk around like this. I'd be upset too. He said, if we would have forgotten your name, verse 20, or stretched out our hands against to a foreign god, would not God search this out? And the answer is yes, because he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, in your name, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You should be recognizing that too. Sheep for the slaughter. It's one thing, you know, to be killed in battle. Yeah, for a reason. It's one thing to die if you are dying because you're a sinner and you're a bad person and God's forsaking you. But these people have been faithful to God and they're dying. And that's the crazy thing here. So look what he says in verse 23. Wake up! See that? Get out of bed, will you? How would you like to say that to God? Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Or to put it this way, stop sleeping! First is the command with the exclamation point. Get up! Wake up! And now the question. Why are you sleeping? We don't understand it. Why are you sleeping on the job? This is ridiculous. You shouldn't be sleeping. Why are you sleeping? And look what he said. Another command. Arise. Do not cast us off what? Forever. Don't allow this to be our lot in life. Forever. So here is the command. So they're trying to get God's attention. This guy is. Let me ask you a question. Does God sleep? No, it says the God of Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. He's on the job. He's awake 24-7. But 
He says, wake up, stop sleeping, rise up, don't cast us off forever. So, God's not sleeping. He's awake. Is he aware of what's going on? Yes, he's aware of what's going on. He's omni, whatever he is, omniscient. <laughs> omniscient. <laughs> what is omniscient? <laughs> says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the land. He sees everything that's going on. So we know he's not asleep, and we know that he's not in a hypnotic stupor. So what's happening here? He's awake, right? And he knows what's going on. And yet, they've lost the battle. And the guy says, wake up and do something about it. And God's already awake. And he knows what's going on. So, what is the issue here? If he's not asleep. What does this mean? How would you, how would you solve that dilemma if you were... I had to figure this out. You'd have to say, what would you say? Well, there must be a reason why he's not doing something. Wouldn't you say that? He knows what's going on. I guess it's just not his timing to deliver us yet. Now remember, the 42 and 43 Psalms, one of the key phrases was hope in God. Remember that? And they have hope in God. But hope always involves what? Waiting. Remember that? Well, they're tired of waiting. Since we have hope in God, we have faith in God, we fought the battle for God. But things are getting so bad and there's an impatience going on here and I certainly understand that impatience. So look what it says in verse 24. He says, why do you hide your face? That means why have you turned your back on us? Why aren't we getting the blessing? Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Another why question. Uh, does God forget? No, he doesn't forget. So, uh, we see that the frustration is producing questions, and the questions are really the wrong questions. And there are a lot of times that God doesn't answer why questions. And the question is, why are you withholding your blessings? And why you forget it. He has a concept of a God with Alzheimer's. A God who forgets. Hey, you must have forgotten that covenant you made with us. No, God hasn't forgotten. He's got clear thinking. Okay? So, but they ask that question. Now look at verse 25. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Now he's not talking about the you know, ethereal soul. He's just saying we're bowed down to the dust. Soul just simply means us. People. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. What do you think that means? Well, it could mean we're dying and we're going into the dust. You know, we're leaving soldiers behind, they're falling to the ground. But the word cling there is a very interesting word. It's the word that we would use today as glue. It's like they're in the foxholes. And they are clinging to the ground, and they're afraid to lift up their heads because if they do, they'll be blown off. So here they are, they're hunkered down, and they're afraid to lift up their heads. So it could be a reference to dying, it could be a reference to being hunkered down like that. We're just not sure, but it's not a good, good situation. So now we have the petition, verse 26. 
Arise for our help. And redeem us for your mercy's sake. Okay? Now, some scriptures might say for the sake of loving kindness. But whatever it is, loving kindness or mercies there is a covenant word. He's saying, save us because you entered a covenant with us and that was the agreement that you made. Now just keep your word and do it. Honor the agreement. Okay? Show us your covenant love. So that's how this psalm ends. Okay? Now, here's the situation. And this is what I want you to think about. The Jews, and I would say all of us as well, believe and believe that God is all-powerful. We all believe that God is all-powerful. We also believe that God is all-good. There's no evil in God. That God's all-powerful, and God is all-good. And this is what we teach, and what we believe, and this is what causes the atheists to scoff at us. Because they say, well, if God's all-good and God's all-powerful, why does he allow a little baby to die? Why does he allow this person to get raped? Why does God allow innocent people to suffer? Because if God's all-powerful, he could stop it. And if God's all-good, he would stop it. So, here's a little baby who's just born into the world, and it has a problem, and the doctors are doing everything they can to save it, and the parents cry out, Oh, God, help! And uh, the baby dies. Well, if God's all good, and he doesn't save it, then it must mean he's not all powerful. He just couldn't save it. Even though he wanted to, he's a good God, he just couldn't do it. Or, that situation, the baby dies, the parents have prayed to God, if God's all-powerful, he certainly could have saved it. But he didn't, so he must not be all-good. Because, let's face it, if I saw a little child run into a street in front of a moving car, and I don't, I'm not all-powerful and I'm not all-good, but guess what I'm going to try to do? I'll make every effort I can to save it. And the only reason I might not be able to save a baby is because... I'm not powerful enough to stop the car. Now, if I were Superman, Clark Kent, a you know, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights an endless battle for truth, justice, and the American left. Yeah. Faster than a locomotive, you know, more powerful than a locomotive, faster than a speeding bullet. I would just go like this, and I would stop that car. Because I'm powerful enough to do that. Well, if I were Superman, and I didn't stop the car, and I saw it coming, whole, you would say, that's a bad, that's an evil Superman. He put on Superman's outfit. That's not the real <laughs> Superman. Because the real Superman would have what? Saved. So if God is good, and he doesn't save, he must not be all-powerful. If God's all-powerful, and he doesn't save, then that must mean he's not a good God. And that's why we have atheists. And, uh, you know, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, you know, O.S. Hawkins, in one of his famous sermons, said, when you can't understand God's mind, 
You have to trust these facts. There is a reason, and there is a why question. God just chooses not to answer the question. He doesn't answer this guy's two questions of why. And he's not obligated to answer our questions why, but we'll discover. Hey, Jesus, standing, facing the cross, disciples, hundreds, and even 5,000 people following Jesus, thinking he's the Messiah, and guess what? He's arrested, brought before Pontius Pilate. They all pray, God, save him, save him, save him. And guess what? Jesus is put to death. And you say, well, if God was all-powerful, he could have saved his son, didn't he? And he didn't. <laughs> Maybe he's not all good. Or if he's all good, he could have saved Jesus from dying on the cross, couldn't he? But he didn't. Maybe he's not all-powerful. And so they go in the upper room, they, they hunker down, scared to death. Afraid they're going to end up on some crucified crucifixion cross. And they're saying, God, why, why, why is this? But guess what? Three days later, all the questions were answered. God had a different plan, and it wasn't their plan, it was his plan that he reveals in a certain time. His timing is always perfect. He raises Jesus from the dead. See? Now, that's why Tony Campalo, who has a very famous sermon on Christ's death and resurrection, he entitles it, Friday's here, but Sunday's a company. And we may not see things clearly, just like this guy doesn't see things clearly, but God's timing is always exact. Now I want to show you something that I think is absolutely amazing. <clears throat> Look at verse 22 there. And I want you to read it, and I want you to get it in your mind. Just don't forget it. You'll, just, you'll see the key words. Just relax and read it. Here's what it says. For your sake we are killed all day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now when that general writes that, or this, whoever writes this, writes it, he's complaining, isn't he? <laughs> look, look what it says. For your sake... <laughs> And you don't do anything about it. For your sake, we're killed all day long, and we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 35. Romans 8.35. Notice the different perspective that Paul has from the psalmist. Okay? Romans 8.35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is what? Nothing can separate. No one can separate. Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. See, Paul doesn't see suffering in the name of Jesus as a great tragedy. He actually sees it as the opportunity for victory. Because Paul lives on this side of the cross. On this side of the resurrection. He's seen someone that looked like they were forsaken. My God! My God! Why have you what? 
But we see the whole time he wasn't forsaken. And Paul realizes that everything that he's going through, this suffering that he's going through, in the name of the Lord is an opportunity for him to brag on the Lord and just stand back and wait for God's timing to bring about the victory. Whether it happens in this lifetime, and the baby may die, and the spouse may die, and it may seem like the worst tragedy in ever, and we may not understand it, and we may go into depression and say, why, why, why? When we can't understand God's mind, we need to trust his heart. Because one day, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And everything will make sense at that time. Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 45. One question back here. One comment. I was called last night by Gene Davis and our, our family here, Janet and Toxie White. Their mother of 100 years old fell and broke her hip yesterday, and they requested prayer because she's going to have surgery today. Okay. So you all know Toxie. Uh, his mother, his mother, wasn't it? Toxie? Yes. It was Janet's. Oh, Janet's mother. Uh, fell 100 years old. His mother fell, broke her hip, having surgery today. So let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we pray for Toxie's mother. We realize that uh, he, this is a situation where there is a tragedy. People are going to be praying. We don't know the outcome, but we know the outcome. <laughs> we know the, big, the bigger outcome. Uh, we trust in you. We will not back away. We will not forget you. We will remain faithful no matter what. And know that you will work things out uh, for the good in the end. Thank you, Lord, for this song. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.